Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Welcome back to a testosterone-filled edition of Author News Weekly. I'm Ari McGee, and I am joined by the irresistible Jim Heskett. Hello. As well as the immovable Nick Thacker. All right. This week, we've got a special guest filling in, a man who has recently gotten his red belt in audiobook narration that's higher than black belt for you non-jujitsu types. He is also guest-hosted 12.5% of the time on Author News Weekly. We're bumping those numbers up. The one and only old Colonel Burnsides himself, Craig Hart. <laughs> Craig Hart. Hey, everybody. How are you doing? What's up, man? I was waiting for some I word like irrefutable. I was I expecting I, irascible. Yeah, I, Immutable. I, mean, I, was, I was braced for it. I wanted to give him the Colonel Burnside's treatment, so I wanted to do something <laughs> special for you guys. <laughs> you know, well, I miss a, Colonel Burnside's. With a twelve and a half percent now, that's pre- I was going to ask you if I was at least. I just wanted double digits. Is all is what I wanted. So we're there. Yeah, I think this is about our fortieth episode that we've done, and I think this is your fifth time on the show. And so I'm no mathematician, but I think that's twelve and a half percent. I'm going to take your word for it. Wonderful, wonderful. So what's going on, guys? How's everybody's Christmas time? Lovely. Yeah, it's going. Uh, it's well, it's going. We all had the cold of some sort, so we spent Christmas, you know, low key at home alone, and it was actually all bad. <laughs> Apart from <laughs> feeling crappy, it wasn't, you know, just the core unit wasn't too bad this year. It's kind of nice, isn't it? It's yeah. like you look forward to seeing family and having everybody come over and cooking dinners and lunches all day, and then. About halfway through, you're like, why? <laughs> why did I? Why did I think this was a good idea? I, why, then, if I liked this, I would still live at home with my. Parents. <laughs> and then you spend the entire coming year forgetting that exactly. what happened at child, the halfway point, and then you're childbirth. My, my wife immediately, like after like seven seconds later, was like, "I want to have another baby." I was like, "Did you just forget <laughs> the pain you just I, went through?" I watched the whole thing. It was a bloodbath. <laughs> I'm, tra- I'm going to be traumatized for like 18 years. <laughs> easily easily well, all right guys good times so since we're all uh hunky dory and everything is going well damn it nicholas we are already in the news it's like the newsception so first story i didn't know if you wanted it or not so i, I just i don't know i don't know Craig, do you have any friends that are good at running a board? Do you think we could borrow <laughs> them? You know if it was a board, it'd be easier. Nobody I would subject to this nonsense. <laughs> Ouch. That's fair. You have Jeez. to. You the problem is it's not friends. a board. It's a button. It's on. It's a window on my, my and I have to find it. And then I click it, mm. and it thinks I want it to play. That's fair. That's fair. If it was a board, I know you'd have it. Beep, beep, beep. Good That's to go. That's exactly what it would sound like. Yep. Hey, I listen. I listen to you, Brent. All right. So our first story, it's not so much a story as something that might be interesting for you guys to talk about. And it's from Women Writers, Women Books, and it's called On Significant Authorship, Writing as a Team. Now, this particular article is about a couple, a husband and wife team that write together. I don't think that you guys quite do that. You know, I know Nick and Jim are very close. I don't think that they're involved in matrimony with each other. But 
You need uh, to stop making assumptions about other people's <laughs> lives because you just don't know, man. That's fair. That's fair. I'm sorry, man. Is there anything you want to tell us? Nope. You know nothing, John Snow. That's fair. That's fair. Okay. All three of you have written with a co-writer. Okay. It's not something that I've ever done at this point in my life. So I kind of want to go around to you guys and see what sort of things would you be on the lookout for when you want to co-write with someone and what are the things that are good and what are the things that you hate about your partner? Jim, mm. tell me everything you hate about Nick quick. Nick and I have written eight books together and I still don't know if we have a quote unquote process. You know, we wrote a six book series together and learned a lot about what not to do when co-authoring. I mean, overall it came out just fine, but it was difficult because I think Nick and I met, I pitched him the idea for the series and he said, yeah, let's write. And then we, over onion rings, we hashed out the outline to the series. And then we came away with sort of different ideas of how the production schedule was going to go. <laughs> we didn't specify things exactly. And also part of the for, fact was that. Well, for that, example, for example, what do you mean by different ideas? Jim wanted a co-writer and I wanted a slave. <laughs> <laughs> so we just had this idea about I was going to write the first drafts and then Nick and there were going to be sort of incomplete first drafts. Like first drafts with spaces to add characters, to add subplots and that sort of thing. Mm. And then when it came time for next turn, we just didn't have time for it. And, I, you know, some of that's because we were finishing up the books during the beginning of the pandemic. So it was like, you know, the most chaotic time in human history since the bubonic plague. And I think we did pretty well considering that. But I mean, I, I think the lessons I learned are, you know, be real clear about who is going to do what on what schedule. And also you have to be flexible, you know, because the world was ending and we were trying to bring half a dozen books to market in a couple of months. And it was very, very chaotic. So, you know, have systems in place, but then be prepared to adapt when those systems no longer work because the world's ending or something similar. Mm, okay. Now, Nick, you could unmute yourself and refute all the evil things <laughs> that Jim just said about you. Well, Slave I didn't driver. hear anything that he said because I had my microphone muted. Remember, that's how that works. Indeed, indeed. I take full credit for any <laughs> communication failure of any co-writing project. That's like my disclaimers. My lawyer just told me to say that whenever I start any conversation, like with my <laughs> wife or anybody else anyway. No, I mean, the truth of it is, like, I bit off a lot of projects. I don't want to say I bit off more than I could chew because that's cliche, but it is true. There were a lot of projects that I wanted to do that I thought I could do if everything fell into place perfectly, if the world wasn't going to end, if I wasn't going to move to Hawaii to battle my anxiety and crippling depression, if I wasn't going to have to also write my own series, you know, and I just didn't consider that that's a lot of shit to deal with. I think part of it is mental health blindsides us, right? Um, but then there's this whole other side of it about called being a big boy and like being able to communicate expectations with people better. And that's my biggest failure in all of my co-writing projects is saying, you know, it's not enough to just kind of assume, okay, I'm going to say you do the first draft and I'll come in with the second draft and just assume they know what I'm talking about. Mm. Because like Jim said, it means something different to everybody. There's nothing wrong with my approach or his approach, but it has to be exactly the same approach once you've had that conversation and decided to do it. All that to say, I have one rule when it comes to any co-writing project, really any business project at all. And that's, we have to have a same sense of humor or at least a sense of humor. And I don't, and that sounds really squishy and weird, but like, that's just very true. Like if I can't laugh with the person, I can't communicate with the person mm. you know, in a sense. If I can't communicate with the person, I can't laugh at the person. It, I don't know if it's chicken and egg thing, but that's really it. Like I've met people who take themselves so damn seriously. I don't want to work with them, but you don't know that until midway through the project. And it kind of gets canned because I'm like, well, 
I just, I'm not, this isn't, we're not gelling together. Right. And so I've distilled it down to, if I can't make a joke and have them laugh and make another joke, then it's just not going to work out. There's no point. It's just a quick test for me. I'm not saying that as advice everybody else should use, but for me personally, that's just how I work. I treat this stuff as, there's nothing we can't recover from. There's no mistake too large. We can't fix it. And there's no such thing as something so important in writing that, you know, personal stuff should go to take the back burner. Does that make sense? So in a sense, if anybody believes those things, I don't want to mess around and work with them because it's just not going to work out. Mm. We can overcome any difference. We can overcome anything if we communicate and we can laugh about it and say, hey, I'm so sorry. I expected this and I gave you this. That's my fault, whatever. But if people are taking themselves so seriously that they need me to submit a deadline and like outlines by that, I can't do that. Mm. Okay. Right on, man. Well, that's kind of ranty, but I hope that's helpful. No, no, that actually is. That really is. I think that's a good to have a litmus test that you give people, whatever it happens to be. And yours with humor, I think is a good way to go. Mr. Craig, I know you're a prolific co-writer. What do you got for us, man? Well, the other two really covered a lot of it. For me, it's when you enter into a co-writing relationship, you're never totally sure how it's going to go. Even if you think you know the person well, sometimes things go in a direction you don't expect. And so you have to, I think, when you get into it, understand that the first go may be a practice round and maybe be clear about that. Hey, let's see how it goes. Let's not promise each other anything. Let's just see how the process goes, see if we do work together well. And once you've gone through that, if it does go well enough, you can go back and see what worked and what didn't and simplify things down and, again, capitalize on what worked and discard what didn't. But I don't think what Nick said about having a sense of humor is squishy at all. I think that is key. Yeah, I value work and hard work and productivity, but I also value having a good time while I'm doing it. Because that's kind of the reason we're all doing this, right? Instead of doing quote unquote real jobs, is because this is our passion. This is what we want to do. We have fun doing it. And if it be, gets to be a drag or a drudgery, then I may as well get rid of a lot of the stress and go <laughs> do something else with somebody else as the boss. <laughs> yeah. So I think that there's nothing wrong with that at all. Choosing to work with people who share your vision, but uh, share a good sense of humor, share your values, whatever that is. And I'm not talking, you know, what everybody thinks of as values, but in terms of work and productivity and all that, um, if you can you know, find somebody that you match up well in those areas, absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with if you're in the middle of the process or you get started and it's not working to change. Sometimes hard decisions have to be made. And as Nick said, you know, you just got to do that and make those decisions and move on. Things happen. But all in all, yeah, the writing is the important thing, but the journey to where you get to where you're being productive is also very important. And I think too many people overlook that. And uh, I think it can be at a detriment to having a good time while you're doing it. Right on, man. That's all good info from you guys. I like that a lot. So if anyone is thinking about co-writing or something, you know, take a listen to what these guys were saying and try to save yourself some heartache up front so you can maybe have a better, easier time doing what you do. All right, let's move on to the second story here. It's a little weird, nothing super deep to go into, but I just wanted to touch on it. Or maybe there is something super deep. I don't know what you guys are bringing to the table about this. It's from a website called The Legal Genealogist, and it's called Inheriting the Copyright. And so the whole, it's written by someone named Judy Russell. The premise of this is, you know, we all understand, you know, that copyrights last for some time after you die and things like that. But how does the copyright pass through your estate where you to go to pass away? You know, how does the copyright pass through your estate? 
are you guys hip on that? And is there anything specific you're doing to kind of protect your IP, you know, for the long run? Because I know that we all think that we hear people flippantly say like, oh, these things could be making money for your children when you're gone and stuff like that. So what are you guys doing to kind of set yourselves up for that future success with your books? How about Nick? We'll go for Nick first on this one. Absolutely nothing. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's kind of one of these like nagging priorities that I've got that just pops up on my to-do list and I shove it back another few months and just say, I'm going to deal with it. Snooze. Like, Snooze. Pretty much. Pretty much. No, it's a real thing that we definitely, we as creatives need to be thinking about because there's a real asset there and something that will potentially earn money for a long, long time, hopefully after we're dead. And so assuming, I mean, hopefully after we're dead and hopefully we live a long time, not like hopefully after we're dead, you know, mm-hmm. when we die tomorrow. I just thought I should clarify in case people take that as a <laughs> come kill me. So the plan at this point is to have a close friend of mine sort of manage the books for a 10 or 15% portion. And that doesn't mean much other than, you know, just kind of maybe give them covers every now and then. I, there's going to be some details about how to do that, what I expect them to spend on ads. And, you know, it's all potential uh, a portion of my royalties and just to try to keep them alive as long as possible. And then the rest of it would go to my estate, but I haven't actually set that up. I have no idea how to do it. I'm sure lawyers will be involved and it will cost me more money to do it than anyone will actually earn, but I don't know. It's something up there, but mm. we'll see. Cross that bridge when I die, I guess. Fair enough, man. Just leave it to them. They'll figure it out. <laughs> Greg, what about you, man? Are you any more prepared than Mr. Thacker? I am less prepared. <laughs> Fair. No, it's, I mean, anytime I've thought about this, I sort of have an onset of imposter syndrome. Like, who do I think I am? You know, Tolkien, you know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's a real question and definitely something I should be looking into for sure. But I'm afraid I have no valuable advice to offer other than to say, don't be like Craig, which is kind of a good rule of thumb for real life in general, I think. Okay. Jim, do you feel that? To be That's- like Craig? No, that's the pressure of this whole segment <laughs> falling on your shoulders. Well, Nick and I have several books together, so there's copyright stuff on that. We probably should work out at some point. My current plan is to marry my son to one of his daughters to consolidate our power, <laughs> and then we won't have to worry about it. I don't know. I've read this. This stuff comes up on Facebook groups all the time. They're like, what's going to happen to your books after you die? And your kids are going to blah. And all of these arguments seem predicated on the children of authors being terrible people. This is something that I need to do. I'm afraid that I'm not going to be the one who comes in here and says, well, I've already got this worked out. You slackers. I am a slacker too. Mm, right on. And I think that's probably most of us. You know, I think it's the kind of thing that seems pretty far down the line. And I've noticed, you know, I've unfortunately had a few deaths in the family in the last couple of years. And it's like that with regular life too. You know, not a lot of people have their wills set up. Not a lot of people have trusts and things you know, the way that would save their family a lot of heartache in the end and not have to go through probate and things like that. So um, maybe we'll see if we can get someone on here to break all this down for us and give us some options. So I have a couple. That'd be cool. I will say, I know my dad went through this with when his parents passed away. You know, there's a lot of estate and crap. This The state wants to make sure every kid is appropriately, you know, compensated or things like that. In this case, I think it's kind of funny because I'm sure there are rules the state would say, the state of Colorado in my case would say, well, you can't have RA be in charge of your royalties because that's not how the state works. And in this particular case, I would just not give the state my Amazon password and I would give it to RA. And I would say, well, what are you going to do about it? Amazon's not going to give it. Go ahead and try to work with Amazon on anything and see how easy it is. (laughs) And RA would just have my password and he would do what he needs to do with my books. And that would be that. 
I'm oversimplifying, but I have a feeling it's probably something like that where we can kind of skirt around some of the legal stuff, legal channels and save money on lawyer fees if we just have a, a solid will that says this person is going to manage this part and they're going to give this much royalties to my next of kin or wife or whatever until the end of time. And any executor would be like, well, I don't really know how to do that. So I guess we'll just assume that's happening. Right. But that's true. That's maybe true. I'm just a sweet summer child and nothing works that way. I <laughs> I'll think more about it when I have my private islands purchased and whatnot. Then I'll worry more about it. Then it's a little, yeah. I was like, nobody wants to manage my estate. That's, that's true. That's true. There's people for that. All right, guys. So story number three, it's not so much a story as it is some questions I want to ask you guys. Now, in my mind, right, and I'm not blowing smoke. I'm not that type of guy. But I think you guys are all... uh accomplished authors, right? I think you guys are all prolific. And I think that you guys kind of have your poop in a group, so to speak. So let me ask you about that. Okay. I want to take a little bit of time and I want to talk about goals and planning. You know, it's going to be a new year soon. Everyone wants to do new year, new them, all that junk. My question is when you sit down and you look at the blank slate that 2022 is, how do you set up goals for yourself and how do you set them up? And then how do you kind of stick to them? You know, do you guys have like a real business plan, like an actual a profit loss, all that stuff? Or what are you guys doing to run your author businesses? Let's go. Let's go, Jim, first on this one. I don't have a proper business plan. Most of my business is run from a whiteboard that's sitting two feet to my right. Um, you know, I know how much money I need to make to get my bills paid. And I know how many, you know, about how many books I need to release and how many in between sales and other kinds of things I need to run to make a certain amount of income. So I plan more on my releases and my promotions than I do on profit and loss. So I've, I have a schedule for 2022 of schedule of, you know, here's what I'm going to write, here's what I'm going to release, here's how many sales I'm going to run and how I'm going to make use of KDP free days. So I have a plan to make money, <laughs> but I don't really have a business plan for 2022. I probably should, but I mean, I've been doing okay with this for a few years now. Okay, right on. How about you, Craig? I know you have a lot of irons in the fire all the time. What are you doing to keep yourself on task? And what are you doing to give yourself goals to kind of strive for? One of the things that kind of turned it around for me, and this is probably obvious to everybody, but the idea of treating my writing or any other you know, thing that I'm doing as an actual business is as a creative, I tend to jump into things like this will be cool and fun to do, something I'm interested in. And we'll just see what happens. And that we'll just see what happens ended up really holding me back from the beginning. But when I sat down and said, you know, this is my business and started treating things that way and paying attention to where the money was going, paying attention to what was coming in or the potential to come in it really helped out a lot. But beyond that, a lot of it comes down to experience and knowing what it's going to take. Like I could have said, start out, you know, I'm going to write 10 books this year. Well, that wouldn't have been a realistic goal, but I might not have known that from the beginning. Now that I'm looking back and I have you know the writing and the audio and all going on, I know what's reasonable to expect. And as Jim said, you end up knowing how much money you need to make, not only to cover ongoing expenses, but in order to you know keep the lights on and whatnot. Um, but like him, it's more of a <laughs> it's more of a whiteboard situation. I don't have an accountant, for example. I run things things by. I have a couple of spreadsheets, so a whiteboard and a couple of spreadsheets, and that's my that's my business plan. Okay, right on. Nicholas, what you got for me, man? I have to be careful this time of year because I really like planning 
And I really like procrastinating on that plan. And so over the years, I've gotten a little like ahead of myself and like I, I know every productivity hack or trick or tip on the planet. And I read books about productivity, not because I am very productive, but because I feel like I am if I'm reading about it. And so this time of year is fraught with like, well, I'm going to try this new strategy and I'm going to do this new thing. And I'm going to write lists. And I even have this, check this out. This is my new Christmas present I got myself. It's just an e-ink tablet that I write on. And basically it's just a $375 piece of paper. Is that the um, remarkable? It's not the remarkable, it's the super note. I got it for a few different reasons, but I looked at both and, and this is the one that I wanted. I mainly got it for editing. We were talking about that in Slack that I can highlight and things like that and then export it as PDF and all that. So it's pretty cool. But anyway, so the point is I have to be very careful. I'm going to do what I've been doing the past few months sporadically, which is this, this thing called the 12-week year. And it's pretty neat. It allows me to work and be productive in a mode that I personally don't feel locked into. You guys know me. I jump from one thing to another and some things get left behind because nobody's interested in them or whatever. And so if I just said, I'm going to write, just like Craig said, I'm going to write 10 books a year, I can do that. But I'll be really bummed and depressed by the end of the year because there's all these other things I have to say no to in order to do that. And I'm sure my career would be much better off for it, but that's just not fun for me. What's fun for me is doing all kinds of random crap and then trying to make something out of one or two of those things at the end of the year. So the 12-week year is essentially, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's like picture your entire year and then do it all in 12 weeks. And there's a methodology and stuff, of course, but that's worked really well for me because if 2020 and 2021 has taught me anything, it's that you have no idea where you're going to be in three months. Literally. I mean, I geographically was in a different place every three months in, in 2020 and 2021 for the most part. And so it's very important for me right now coming out of that to just acknowledge that, hey, I don't know that I'm going to be doing this exact same thing in three months. I hope I am, but I need to plan as though it could change. And by doing this 12-week year thing, it allows me to reassess every week so that by the time I hit that 12th week, there's actually a 13th week if you divide the year up. And that 13th week is for planning the next one, and you know, deciding what to do next. It's really cool. Um, there's a book and all that stuff. I don't remember who wrote it, but it's cool. It's fun stuff and it, it works really well and it scratches the planning itch, but it also actually works. It also works for me personally. So that's something to check out. Aside from that, I mean, to answer your question specifically, I don't really do the goals thing as much anymore. RA, I'm more of a systems guy, meaning, you know, if I set a goal of writing 10 books a year, every day I haven't written 10 books that year, I'm living like in a perpetual state of failure. And I'd much rather, just for the mental health side of it, live in a state of perpetual success. So building a system that could get me to 10 books a year, I won't call it that. I'll call it write every day 500 words or something. And that, cause I can do that every day. And if I fail one day, well, then the next day I can be successful again, you know? So there's things like that that I've found that are helpful for me. But aside from that, I kind of have to just pull back a little bit this time of year because I would consume all the, like, let's go, I would sign up at everything, you know? Oh, I've already got a gym membership, but that, that one's got a special <laughs> New Year's resolution, new me. I'm in. I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. So I have to be pretty careful this time of year. Okay. Right on. Well, it's good to hear a few different ways that you guys are managing your career and making things happen. And now I have like kind of a sub question from this question. So this is kind of story 3.5. And this is something I've been really chewing over the last few months. It's been resonating with me. And it's a quote. And the quote is, last year, I made the decision to move from successful amateur to novice professional. And that decision has made all the difference. All right. And that quotes from uh, Ryan Mitchler. He runs a podcast called uh, The Order of Man. It's really big. And, you know, he's into that stuff. And it's a little woo woo, right? But it's kind of been resonating with me. And so 
if you guys consider yourselves professionals, and I don't mean that you do that to pay your bills because you guys obviously do, but I mean, if you are approaching your career in a professional manner, was there something that you did when you went from successful amateur to novice pro, you know, as far as, all right, well, this is what I'm going to be doing now. So I need to X. And what was that X that you saw the biggest benefit from? How about you, Craig? Yeah, definitely. And I think for me, it was making the decision in you know, more recent months to surround myself with the <clears throat> professionals that I wanted to be, for example. You know, it was, it's pretty easy, especially for me, mention the imposter syndrome to, you know, early on, especially get with people like, oh, that I feel comfortable with that. But find people and surround yourself with people who maybe you consider to be a few levels above you. And that to me has kind of inspired me to then to reach upward instead of stay static a little bit. And so that's made a huge difference. I will, as a warning, there have been some toes I've stepped on, by the way, because <laughs> there are people who, for one reason or another, want you to stay on a different level. But that's a decision you've got to make for yourself to continue on regardless of what other people are saying or may expect of you or demand of you. Hmm. Hmm. I like that. I like that. Hey, all right. So, Nick, did you have uh, kind of an X that you started viewing your career from successful amateur to novice professional? You know, mine really snuck up on me. Just to be, I mean, very specific about like the book side, I never did it to be a full time writer because I didn't think that was possible. I don't know if that was imposter syndrome or reality, but I just never thought it was going to work until all of a sudden it was working. And I was like, all right, well, I mean, this is more fun than, you know, going to a day job. So I guess I'll try it. And most people out there who know me know this, know the longer story. So I won't get into that. But I love what Craig said about the stepping on toes thing. I've never really been afraid of confrontation. In other words, I'm an asshole. But I think the, the upside, the positive side is I'm not afraid to be over communicative about something if it pisses me off. And not because I'm an asshole, but because I want to get to the bottom of it and I want to figure out if do we need to work together or not. I've been very good in my personal life lately. I've been very good over the past probably five, maybe 10 years of cutting out negativity. Just, oh, cool. You're going to bring that shit here. Okay. Well, I have no time for that. I mean, my life is better because of it. I'm sure there's people who I could enjoy being friends with that I'm not friends with because they're just negative all the time. And I don't really consider that a big, a major loss. What I've gained is better than what I've lost. So for me, it, that's bled into my professional life as well. And like I mentioned before, that sense of humor thing, like that's pretty simple. You know, if there's people who are just constantly negative or constantly victims or constantly woe is me uh, about this, it's like, well, yeah, sometimes there's something I can help with that. But most of the time, like I don't have time to work on someone else's life if that's they're just constantly bringing stuff to, you know, I'm not explaining that very well, but I think you guys get what I'm, you get sure. what I'm picking up here, yeah. picking up what I'm putting down. That's been really helpful for me just to be very clear about, you know, my expectations in professional and personal life is, you know, like I'm obviously going to be empathetic. And if there's situations like I want to be there to talk and whatever, but if that's all you do and just bring negativity and not actually get anything done, I just, I can, I can do better without it. Right on. That's really good. Don't have yeah. time to work in other people's lives. <laughs> so that is really brilliant. Yeah, and I, I mean, mm. like I said, I, I, in the same breath, I said I'm an asshole. So I don't want it to come across like that's why I'm doing it. That's why I'm saying it. But I think we all know every single person out there has a different definition of negativity. Whatever that is, mm. you don't have time for that. That's all I'm saying. Figure out what it is. Figure out what your negativity is and just cut those people out of your life. You will just be so much better off immediately afterwards. Yeah. True that. Jim, what about you, man? When did you level up, so to speak? Uh, and when you became a novice professional, was there anything that you kind of had to overcome that was new to you now that you were viewing your career through a different lens? 
I was sitting here trying to think about if there was a moment that I could look back to where I felt like I became an author. I don't know if there was one, but I was I was thinking about the differences here. It says, I made the decision to move from successful amateur to novice professional. And I was just kind of meditating here on the differences between those two phrases. Mm. Like, what's the difference between being a successful amateur and a novice professional? And then, you know, Nick said, Nick mentioned the imposter syndrome. And I think that's it. I think the difference between successful amateur and novice professional is whether or not you believe you deserve to be here. Mm. Because I don't, you know, like I said, there's not one point where I look back and said, oh, and then I became a real author. But, you know, there was a series of steps that I could look back on, like getting my first book bub, getting my first orange tag, where those things felt like such huge deals at the time that I can look back at them now as milestones, mm-hmm. although they didn't necessarily feel like it at the time. So, I mean, confidence is a wave. It's not a static line. And so I don't always feel like I deserve to be here. But I do more feel like I deserve to be here now than I did several years ago before achieving certain milestones. And don't worry, we'll tell you when you're a real writer. Okay, thank you. That's what we're all here for. <laughs> I'm not here to stoke your imposter syndrome, but we'll tell you when you're a real, you're a real boy. <laughs> oh, man, good times, good times. All right, guys, well, that's our last story. I appreciate you guys kind of getting into that. You know, I think that some of this stuff is good for people to hear. You know, I think that, you know, we've kind of all gotten to the point where we are able to put one foot in front of the other on our author journey but some people aren't there yet and uh, you know maybe they need to hear some of these things hey i need to hear it so i'm glad to hear it myself before we get out of here i want to take a minute and put craig on the spot craig you as a deer in headlights look craig you have been involved with something really cool that i've been checking out lately and it's called legacy radio theater can you tell us a little bit about legacy radio theater and what projects you guys kind of have uh, spun up at the moment? Yeah. So Legacy Radio Theater produces audio dramas, full cast, you know, sound effects, actors, original music for their, our most recent release, The Titanic Wave. We hired John Campbell to do the music, and he's worked for you know, Disney and ABC and all the big guys. That was great to work with him. And our next production, which I just announced uh, this morning, is Pendragon, Rise of the King, which is going to be a, at least the season one, full retelling of the King Arthur legend. And what we'll probably do there is have it in a trilogy, so parts one, two, and three. Season one is Rise of the King, when we start see the, you know, Arthur come into his own a little bit. But yeah, Legacy Radio Theater, is, it's in the audio drama arm of Northern Lake Audio. Northern Lake Audio does traditional audiobooks. And yeah, so we're just excited to see where this goes. And hopefully, I mean, podcasts are on the rise and audio drama fiction podcasts are, are on the rise. It's a, But it's still something of a new frontier. In fact, I don't know if you guys saw this story recently. There was, I think in the Times, there's a company in Hollywood who sunk a lot of money into, they're going to do an audio drama podcast. And the Times was like, what do we call this? Is this something new? And we're all laughing like, no, it's not new. It's just been around forever. But there are some of the key players are just now getting and waking up to the fact that this is a thing. So I'm excited to see where it goes. Nice. Legacyradiotheater.com. Check it out. Excellent. And I'm super interested in that. You know, the full cast, you know, the production, all the different voices and stuff. That's pretty cool. And so I wanted to let you kind of chat about that a little because I think I think this is a pretty hip thing that you got going on, man. And uh, I'm rooting for it to do well. I'm also wondering where I can get the Legacy Radio hat because I want to wear it around. Do I only get it if I participate? Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. He's stuck. He's stuck. Craig. I can answer that. No, the hats are free. 
You just email <laughs> you want. Yeah. And you Perfect. get as many hats. I asked for 175 hats. So he's off making those right now. Well, Good. if Craig doesn't come back, I can say I've listened to the sample of the Titanic Wave and it sounds amazing. It's definitely it's a step cool. above novice professional. It sounds like actual professional. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's pretty cool. And I was following along with him while he was putting it together. I was following them on Facebook and he was showing like, uh, what's that called? Foley? You know, when like you make the noises and stuff and yeah. he's like, oh, I need a propeller noise. And he was getting stuff in his kitchen and doing it. So very cool. Very cool. So uh, we're happy for Craig, a uh, good friend of the show, Craig. And we hope the Legacy Radio Theater uh, is a big hit. So do you guys got anything you want to do before we wrap this thing up? Nope. We good? All right, gents. Well, thanks for coming on. I hope you guys have a happy new year. For all of us at Author News Weekly, including Pippa and Craig Hart, I'm R.A. McGee saying this meeting is over. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>